Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Uh, I'm Kevin Wilson. I'm one of the uh, Yale Neurology residents. I have with me our uh, program director, Dr. Jeremy Moeller. Uh, we're going to be talking about anti-seizure medications today. Thanks, Kevin, and thanks uh, for having me on. It's exciting to join you for another episode, and um, I'm really excited to talk about this topic. I think we could go on for a long time, but hopefully we can take a practical uh, case-based approach and talk about some of the most common things that come up in both clinical practice, but also the types of things that will come up on certification exams uh, of various types. Uh, I will stay at, say at the outset that we will try to discipline ourselves to use uh, generic terms for the anti-seizure medications. Uh, and uh, I do want to say uh, from the outset that I do not have any specific uh, disclosures to make about uh, uh, this topic. I uh, have no financial disclosures as it relates to anti-seizure medications. So now that that's out of the way, why don't we get started? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Kevin, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a tricky case. We're gonna start with a tough one. Um, so there are approximately 30 anti-seizure medications that are available for the treatment of epilepsy. And you notice I'm using the term anti-seizure medications gradually as we make adjustments in our language. Uh, we are using the term anti-seizure rather than anti-epileptic drugs. And I think that's an important distinction to make because None of these medications, as far as we're aware and as far as the research available, does anything about the underlying cause of the epilepsy. All that they do is uh, raise the seizure threshold. They make seizures less likely to happen, and we'll get into some of the ways that anti-seizure drugs can do that. So uh, we'll call them anti-seizure drugs. Uh, one of the challenges in making the change in terminology is that ASD means something else relevant to neurologists too in the stroke literature. So we're still going to have to come up with an abbreviation for anti-seizure drugs. And I guess for the time being, we're just going to have to call them anti-seizure drugs. Uh, so we'll go from there. Although I would forgive anyone for continuing to say AEDs. I think that's totally fine and it's, it's easy and easy to type. Yeah, I'm all for precision in language, but you know, we're all learning. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the world is moving forward, uh, onward and upward. So uh, I'm just going to say from the start, uh, Kevin, that when we're talking about narrowing down our choices of anti-seizure drugs, we're really going to think about six main types of issues that are going to be considerations. First, we'll think about the appropriateness for the epilepsy syndrome. So there are some anti-seizure drugs that very specifically work better than others uh, for a specific epilepsy syndrome. Second, we'll think about adverse effect profile, and that will include patient preferences, that will include comorbidities, uh, and, and there are many aspects that we can consider around that. We'll think about the pharmacokinetics. So that is how the medications are absorbed, how they're metabolized, how they're excreted, excreted the dosing regimen that we're going to give with these medications, pharmacokinetic interactions with other drugs, all of that will be very important. We're also going to think about the pharmacodynamic profile. So the pharmacodynamic pro profile is how we think these anti-seizure drugs work. So how they might work at various parts of the nervous system to make seizures less likely. And that's particularly important both for appropriateness to epilepsy syndrome, but also because of drug interactions. When you give two drugs with a very similar pharmacodynamic profile, you may amplify some of the adverse effects because they're acting on the same receptor or in the same area. 
I think it's very important to consider pregnancy uh, implications with anti-seizure drugs. Uh, you know, half of the population between 15 and 50, all, uh, any woman has the potential to become pregnant. Uh, many pregnancies in women with epilepsy are unplanned or unexpected. And so we have to think about pregnancy up front and think about how, in the event of an unexpected pregnancy, our choice of anti-seizure drug might affect the wellness of both the woman and the fetus. And we do, to some extent, have to think about cost. Uh, and a general rule is that older anti-seizure drugs and those with generic formulations are generally going to be less expensive and newer anti-seizure drugs or long-acting formulations of older anti-seizure drugs might be more expensive. Um, and it, that is not something we're going to get into a, into a lot of detail uh, in this podcast, but it is something that uh, realistically has some practical considerations in the lives of many of our patients. So Kevin, I'm going to throw a case at you, and I'm going to make this a tricky one, so I hope you're ready. Let's do it. All right. So a 19-year-old woman with a history of severe depression presents with a first-ever bilateral tonic-clonic seizure shortly after awakening. In retrospect, when we take a very good history, we, we hear that she's been having some clumsiness and twitching in the morning over the last several months, particularly when she's sleep-deprived. Her EEG shows generalized polyspike wave discharges at four to five hertz, more prominent during sleep, and she has a photoparoxysmal response uh, to photic stimulation. So Kevin, what is the best choice of anti-seizure drug for this woman? Well, I think, you know, like, like we were talking about before, we want to think about in terms of, you know, what, uh, what kinds of epilepsy syndrome, you know, are we looking at here? And um, you know, that story sounds like a with the sleep deprivation and the jerks in the morning and clumsiness sounds like a myoclonic epilepsy sort of picture to me. Um, you know, we were just talking about pregnancy implications. And I think, you know, we have to keep in mind with a 19 year old uh, girl what the you know, most appropriate medications are going to be. Uh, I think in her case, um, starting with levetiracetam might not be a bad idea. Um, it's, you know, got a relatively minimal side effect profile. And uh, you know, I know that it, that works for, uh, at least for juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, that's a, a good medication. So I think, Kevin, that's a very reasonable option. Uh, uh, Levetiracetam is one of the broad spectrum anti-seizure drugs. This woman has juvenile myoclonic epilepsy uh, and levetiracetam works for bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. It probably has a good profile against generalized myoclonic seizures, uh, which she also has. Uh, one trick, of course, uh, with her is that she has a history of severe depression. That's true. Um, and I don't know that that's an absolute contraindication to giving levetiracetam, but I think we would have to be very cautious about that. And so uh, are there some other considerations that you could uh, think about in, in this woman? Yeah. So in her case, if you want to, you know, certainly with severe depression, you want to be careful with the psychiatric side effects of levetiracetam. Um, you, you can't, you know, you, you don't really want to go to something like, uh, uh, valproate or valproic acid because of the, uh, pregnancy implications. Um, I think, uh, you know, it could be appropriate to go with, uh, something like lamotrigine, although that would have to be titrate, titrated up slowly. Yeah, I think that's a great choice. I think lamotrigine, uh, could work, uh, very well. One of the issues, and we'll get into this in our discussion, is that lamotrigine, has the potential as a sodium channel 
antagonist as a voltage-gated sodium channel antagonist has the potential for making myoclonus worse. And mm. so that does happen in some patients. I think many neurologists would choose lamotrigine in this woman. It has mood stabilizing effects. It's generally well tolerated. It does have a broad spectrum of activity against multiple different seizure types. Uh, and it's relatively safe in pregnancy. That is, it is associated with relatively low rates of major congenital malformations and in other trials has not been associated with high rates of intellectual or neurodevelopmental problems. And so uh, it's generally considered to be relatively safe in pregnancy, so, uh, uh, so great for a woman of childbearing potential. Um, but we will have to keep in the back of our mind that we may have some issues with uh, the myoclonus, and we may have to consider some other options. And that's why I said at the outset of this case, this is a really tricky one, uh, because yeah. I threw in the major depressive disorder or the severe depression, uh, because otherwise I think many of us would choose levetiracetam. Um, so if we think about the list of what we call broad spectrum anti-seizure medications, it's a relatively short list. And these are the anti-seizure medications that work against both uh, generalized onset seizures and focal onset seizures. And listing them in alphabetical order, uh, I think they would generally be considered to include brivaracetam, clubazam, lamotrigine, levetiracetam, topiramate, valproic acid, and divalproics, uh, different formulations of basically the same drug, and then zonisamide. I think those are probably your general list of broad-spectrum anti-seizure medications. So any one of those drugs could be considered in the treatment of, uh, of this woman. And, and for the reasons we've stated, uh, many of us would probably start with lamotrigine and hope for the best with the myoclonus. And then if myoclonus becomes an issue, either add another agent at a lower dose or replace uh, with another agent. But uh, there's no perfect option. Right. Um, and then just to get back to the list of medications that can worsen myoclonus uh, and something that uh, is really important to be aware of. Um, those include most of the voltage-gated uh, sodium channel antagonists. And so those include carbamazepine, S-lecarbazepine, and oxcarbazepine, which are similar drugs, uh, lamotrigine maybe, uh, and phenytoin. Uh, a couple of other medications we don't use as much but can worsen myoclonus include tiagabine and vigabatrin, uh, which have different mechanisms of action. And, and sometimes gabapentin, uh, that, that can be considered a drug that can worsen myoclonus. So in general, for those listening, uh, the drugs that worsen myoclonus, it's really mostly the sodium channel antagonists um, and something to watch out for and something patients might not always talk about because they're focusing more on their bilateral tonic-clonic seizures and less on the myoclonus. Uh, and lastly, I wanted to talk about, the, in this case, uh, drugs with psychiatric and behavioral side effects. And uh, overall, uh, patients in, uh, we have a, a database here at, uh, between uh, Yale and Columbia, uh, where we have a large number of patients and, and, and we have published uh, data on psychiatric and behavioral side effects, the rates of those side effects with different drugs and the types of things uh, that make people susceptible to behavioral side effects. And so uh, uh, levetiracetam is, is well known uh, to be associated with very high rates of behavioral and psychiatric side effects. In our cohort, somewhere in the range of 20%, so one in five patients would have some degree of behavioral side effects. 
and a little less than that would be severe enough to require a dosage adjustment or a change in medication. Um, one that I think is a little bit less well-known but has come out in our cohort and in some other studies is zanisamide. So uh, zanisamide is a very effective once-daily uh, anti-seizure drug with a broad spectrum of action. It has a long half-life, so it's great if people have adherence issues, um, but it, it can be associated with uh, psychiatric and behavioral side effects. And then we do know that medications like lamotrigine and valproic acid are also used as mood stabilizing drugs and tend to have relatively low rates of psychiatric and behavioral side effects as a result. It is important to remember that patients with a history of a psychiatric condition, like our young woman, uh, may be at higher rates of uh, developing behavioral or psychiatric side effects. And that's why it's really important in every visit uh, with patients with epilepsy that we're asking about depression and anxiety uh, and that we're monitoring that as we introduce different uh, anti-seizure drug therapy. Uh, and the risk is probably close to double. Uh, so the odds ratio is, is almost two uh, for, uh, for uh, somebody with a history of psychiatric conditions developing a psychiatric or behavioral side effects. One thing I think I alluded to a little bit earlier, and one of the reasons we have to be so proactive about pregnancy implications and the possibility of uh, pregnancy in uh, women with uh, epilepsy is based on some literature, some fairly recently published literature suggesting that uh, overall, the percentage of pregnancies in women with epilepsy that were unintended or unplanned is about 65%. So about two thirds of all pregnancies to women with epilepsy are unintended or unplanned, and broken down by age groups at the extremes of age. Very young women and uh, women near the end of their reproductive years tend to have higher rates of unintended or unplanned pregnancies. Uh, and the outcomes of those pregnancies tend to be poor. So whereas 85% of all planned pregnancies will result in a uh, viable fetus in a live birth, so a, a good outcome overall, uh, with unplanned pregnancies, only about half of those pregnancies will result in a live birth, birth so in a, in, a, in, a, in a good outcome. And of those uh, unplanned pregnancies that uh, do not uh, end in a, a live birth, about 25% uh, uh, have spontaneous fetal loss. And there are lots of theories about why that happens, including uh, the possibility, the effects of the anti-seizure drugs themselves or of seizures. Uh, and then of course, some women choose to have an induced abortion. That's another 25%. But it's really important to be proactive and as much as possible to work with women and have a shared plan and a proactive plan to talk about pregnancy and to say, you know, maybe you're not planning this right now, but maybe at some point in the future, you might want to have a, a baby. Maybe you'll become unexpectedly pregnant and choose to continue uh, and have that baby. And in those cases, we want to set you up for the best possible outcomes. And so I think it is never wrong to consider the potential for pregnancy and consider the potential for uh, uh, the effects of, uh, of the anti-seizure drugs and the seizures on the pregnancy. And so we tend to be very proactive about that. Um, Kevin, I just, again, along the same lines of uh, women's issues, because again, this case is, is a young woman, um, a couple of other things I like to be really proactive about include the potential interaction with contraceptive 
uh, drugs. And uh, combined oral contraceptive drugs are metabolized in the liver. And so uh, medications, anti-seizure medications that induce hepatic metabolism will result in reduced levels and reduced efficacy of combined oral contraceptive pills. And in general, the list of medications that's associated with increased uh, hepatic metabolism, enzyme inducers, are most of the, they're mostly older anti-seizure drugs, mostly. And the major uh, metabolizers are gonna be carbamazepine, phenobarbital, phenytoin, primidone. Uh, but at higher doses, there's the possibility that a few of the newer drugs could also play a role. They, you at least have to consider it. And uh, we certainly think about high doses of topiramate as a possibility. Uh, parampanil at high doses is a possibility, and then possibly eslicarbazepine and oxycarbazepine, again, at the higher doses. Most of the other drugs are not going to affect uh, the metabolism of, uh, of contraceptive methods. Uh, and then secondly, uh, lamotrigine is uh, metabolized through the glucuronic acid uh, system, uh, and uh, we'll get back to the case, and I'm going to ask you about that, but Lamotrigine levels can actually be affected by uh, the contraceptive uh, pills, combined oral contraceptive pills. That's right. So thinking about teratogenicity, um, I'm not going to give you a comprehensive list of the teratogenic risk profile of anti-seizure drugs. And this is something that is constantly changing. There are multiple national, international databases and registries for uh, teratogenicity with anti-seizure drugs. Uh, but generally speaking, lamotrigine and levetiracetam are associated with relatively low rates of teratogenicity, probably in the 3% range in, in, if you pool the results of most of the registries. Zanisamide has fewer uh, numbers in these registries, but uh, the available evidence suggests it might be associated with a relatively low risk. Oxcarbazepine in, in one of the European registries was associated with a relatively low risk, but that hasn't been replicated in every registry. Uh, and then a lot of the new drugs, we just don't have much information about. And then when you're thinking about the big guns and the ones that are associated with very high rates of teratogenicity, uh, valproic acid uh, is very high. And valproic acid is associated with neural tube defects, other major congenital malformations, and uh, through the NEED study, the NEAD study, we know that uh, use of valproic acid during pregnancy also has an effect on neurodevelopment and IQ. Uh, so that uh, women who took valproic acid while they were pregnant uh, tended to have children uh, who had a lower IQ than, than other anti-seizure drugs. And then sort of in the middle with some uh, potential side effects or, or issues during pregnancy, are phenytoin, phenobarbital, and topiramate. And uh, important to remember, this comes up on exams and, and is very clinically relevant. Uh, phenytoin has a mixed uh, number of major congenital malformations. A few different types of major congenital malformations are a risk with phenytoin. Phenobarbital very specifically tends to be cardiac malformations. And topiramate very specifically, especially at higher doses, uh, tends to be associated with increased risk of cleft lip, cleft palate, and some of the urogenital uh, malformations. And we can reduce the risks of malformations, particularly neural tube defects, and possibly reduce the risk of neurodevelopmental problems with the use of preconception folic acid. And this is consistent with the AAN guidelines 
uh, for uh, anti-seizure drugs. So uh, preconception folic acid uh, probably uh, definitely reduces the risk of neural tube defects and possibly reduces the risk of uh, things like neurodevelopmental problems, uh, uh, lower IQ, autistic spectrum disorder, et cetera. And there are some, some studies to suggest that uh, if you start the folic acid beyond the first trimester, it's probably uh, going to have less benefit. It's probably too late to have the maximum benefit. And so this is why in our institution, and certainly in my practice, uh, I am suggesting and recommending and prescribing folic acid, supplemental folic acid, to every woman of childbearing potential, uh, no matter what, uh, uh, right from the start. And, and we have a conversation about that uh, at the first visit and at every subsequent visit. Uh, we won't get into exactly what the right dose is, uh, because it hasn't been well studied some folic acid uh, seems to be important. Most of us use uh, between one milligram and four milligrams a day of folic acid, and there's some debate about uh, the risks and benefits of the higher doses. So uh, these are, you, you know, we, we, this was a short case. Uh, JME is a relatively straightforward anti uh, um, epilepsy syndrome. Uh, it is very common, we see it every day, but you can see as you unpack it, especially when you throw in comorbidities and you throw in other issues, there's a lot wrapped up in the treatment of somebody with a relatively straightforward and simple anti uh, epilepsy syndrome. Absolutely, and you have to come at it from all of those different directions to really get the right choice. Exactly. All right, so Kevin, we followed your advice. We started the patient on Lamotrigine, and she did very well. Uh, we were a little worried about her developing some myoclonus, but in fact, she did not. Uh, so she became completely seizure-free uh, on Lamotrigine. Uh, because she was on a combined oral contraceptive pill, we had to put her Lamotrigine dose up to 200 milligrams twice a day. Uh, and at that dose, she had a reasonable serum level and she had good seizure control. Uh, because we were being uh, careful and following the guidelines, we also started her on folic acid one milligram daily. Uh, and because we talked about pregnancy a lot uh, and counseled her regarding that, uh, she was uh, very uh, deliberate and thoughtful about uh, how she wanted to plan her family. And, uh, and she's come back and she said, now she wants to become pregnant uh, and she wants to know what to do with her seizure medications. So yeah, this, this, is a little, this is a little tricky, but I want you to talk me through what's going to happen to her anti-seizure medications, uh, this woman that's on Lamotrigine and on the uh, oral contraceptive pill. Yeah, so this is like we talked about before where, um, you know, when she's on the combined oral contraceptive pill, that's going to accelerate the metabolism of her Lamotrigine, which is why we've had to you know, sort of titrate her up to that relatively high dose on the Lamotrigine of 200 milligrams uh, twice a day. So, you know, presumably when we take her off of the uh, combined oral contraceptive, we're going to have to titrate, we're going to have to bring that Lamotrigine down. Exactly how far down, I don't know, but I think, you know, 100 milligrams BID would not be a terrible place to start. Yeah, that's about right. So uh, we'll get into it. Uh, but Lamotrigine is metabolized through glucuronidation. Uh, so this happens in the liver. Uh, Lamotrigine uh, combines with glucuronic acid using uh, UGT, which is a trans, uh, transferase, I think, uh, and produces an inactive metabolite, which is basically a dimer of the Lamotrigine molecule and the glucuronic acid. And this inactive metabolite is then excreted in the kidneys. Uh, 
And the combined oral contraceptives, that is estrogen-containing contraceptive pills, enhance that glucuronidation. And the size of that effect is about double. So uh, the combined oral contraceptive pills will decrease lamotrigine concentrations by about approximately 100%. Uh, and that, that change happens quick. So the moment you start the contraceptive pill, you're going to see a drop uh, to about half of the uh, baseline serum level. And after you uh, stop the, the oral contraceptive pill, you'll see a rise uh, that happens within a week or so. And so, as you said, we are likely going to have to watch her levels, but we're likely going to have to reduce her dose. And I might go down to 150 twice a day just because we right. want to uh, prevent her from having a seizure and then recheck a level. But probably we're going to end up, as you said, on about half the dose. So going from about 200 twice a day to 100 uh, twice a day. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, obviously, you know, thinking about these things for test questions, it's obviously an important thing moving forward to think about if you're, you know, if you have a medication like that and then, you know, in the, in the question stem, you have a patient who started on, um, you know, combined contraceptive pills to be thinking about that as well for a reason why a patient may have uh, an adverse outcome. Absolutely. Uh, and, and we do see uh, people uh, that have been well controlled for many years that start on a uh, combined oral contraceptive pill and then have a recurrent seizure because of a drop in the level. And um, one thing, this is sort of a practice thing, but sometimes patients can't remember exactly the details of the drug interactions. But right. I will say to young women who aren't on an oral contraceptive pill, and I've started them on lamotrigine, I'll say, just remember that I told you something about starting the contraceptive <laughs> pill and that you have to give me a call. And right. th then I'll get these phone calls and they'll say, I, I knew there was something that I needed to know about this. And then I say, yeah, well, we need to increase your dose because of metabolism and so on. And that's and, certainly much more important than them remembering the, you know, uh, glucuronidation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Most, most, most of my patients don't have to memorize the glucuronidation. Yeah. I, I don't have that standard. Uh, although some are interested. You never know. Yeah. Um, then what happens in pregnancy? So, so she stops her contraceptive pill. We've reduced her dose to 100 twice a day. She remains seizure-free. And then she uh, has happy news and has become pregnant. So what, what do we do then? Well, so I think we're going to have, and I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what the, you know, uh, what the exact, you know, uh, magnitude of effect here is, but we're going to have a similar effect because of the similar hormonal, um, uh, there, there's going to be an increase in the sort of hormonal activity. And I think you're going to have, again, increase in that glucuronidation. So we may have to gradually bring that dose back up uh, once, once she becomes pregnant. That's exactly right. So uh, pregnancy has a similar effect on the UGT, the glucuronic acid metabolism, as the combined or contraceptive pill. And the magnitude of the effect is almost exactly the same. Uh, and that the increases in metabolism are typically in the second and third trimester. But most of us, most epilepsy specialists, most neurologists will start checking uh, monthly lamotrigine levels sometime in the first trimester just to get into the habit and then yeah. monthly after that and make adjustments and and overall the the clearance the metabolism of lamotrigine will double uh, during pregnancy so we're gonna for most patients we're gonna have to end up at the end of pregnancy on double the dose so for this patient very likely by the end of her pregnancy we'll have her from 100 bid at the start to about 200 bid at the end uh, some women, it's much higher. Some women, it's much lower. And this is why you have to really monitor uh, the levels very carefully because everybody's a little bit different. 
And then very tricky is after delivery. And after delivery, as I said before, the effects of hormones uh, on glucuronidation, they turn an on and off very quickly. Uh, so right. typically after pregnancy, we're going to have to reduce the dose uh, very quickly within the first few days, uh, a little bit, and then a little bit more. And most of us will uh, bring down the dose every two or three days uh, and then leave it after pregnancy, after delivery, at a little bit higher than baseline. And the reason that we leave it at a little bit higher than baseline, so for this woman, she's taking 100 BID, she's seizure-free, we might go to 125 or 150 BID. And the reason we're going to do that is that we acknowledge that uh, after a woman delivers, uh, she might be sleep deprived, at least uh, in the first right. year uh, of, the, of the child's life. So uh, we, and we know for her, as somebody with, uh, with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, that's going to increase her risk of seizures. And we're also going to counsel her about the risks of sleep deprivation uh, and, and do everything we can to help her get other family members to do a lot of the help in childcare overnight to prevent recurrent seizures. Absolutely. Um, while we're on the topic of glucuronidation, I think it is worth talking about what happens with valproic acid. So uh, do you know about the effect of valproic acid? There's a very important pharmacokinetic interaction between lamotrigine and valproic acid that comes up a lot uh, on examinations and certainly comes up a lot clinically. And I'll say as an aside, I personally love the combination of lamotrigine and valproic acid for refractory <laughs> epilepsy. I, I think it's, it works very well. And I think there's both pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic reasons why that's the case. But let's say this is a man and let's say we put them on lamotrigine and they're still having a lot of seizures and we want to augment that with valproic acid. What, what's going to happen? Yeah. So, you know, like, like you're saying, we're trying to augment with valproic acid and it's going to, you know, I think it works through the same sort of pathway where instead of, uh, augmenting the activity of this uh, transferase that glucuronidates uh, lamotrigine, it's going to actually diminish the activity of that, uh, uh, that enzyme. And in so doing, you know, increases our levels of our effective levels of lamotrigine. Yeah. And again, because we don't, we like not to have to remember too much, the size of that effect is exactly the same, but in reverse. Uh, right. So valproic acid will effectively double serum lamotrigine levels. And again, it happens quick. Uh, and it's, it's not particularly dose dependent, I don't think. Uh, it, it really is above a certain dose of valproic acid, which is not a particularly high dose, you're gonna have to make those adjustments in lamotrigine. So as soon as you start the valproic acid, you're probably gonna have to cut your lamotrigine level close to half uh, and monitor levels carefully. So um, this lamotrigine metabolism through glucuronidation is a really important thing to understand clinically and something that comes up on exams a lot. And, and, and pregnancy, oral contraceptives, and valproic acid, it's important to understand the, the effects of those on the UGT pathway. All right, we have a different uh, case, and this is gonna illustrate some different elements of the pharmacodynamics of anti-seizure drugs. So an eight-year-old boy is brought to the office by his parents. Uh, he has been told, the teachers have told his parents that they're concerned he has intention deficit hyperactivity disorder. He's sitting in the back of the class and he doesn't seem to be learning much. He's not paying attention. Uh, and his EEG shows generalized bifrontal maximal three hertz spike wave discharges uh, in long runs. And 
they get them to blow on a pinwheel and that just goes on and on and on for 20 seconds uh, with hyperventilation. So uh, what's the most appropriate anti-seizure drug for this, medic for this patient? Yeah, I mean, this, so this, again, looking at the most appropriate seizure drug for anti-seizure medication for, uh, you know, a clinical syndrome, and this is a classic sort of uh, absence with uh, uh, absence epilepsy with the uh, EEG findings and with that sort of classic story. And, um, you know, usually what we'll try first is episeximide in that case. Yeah, that's right. And that's uh, based on a classic head-to-head -head trial uh, of a number of different drugs for uh, the treatment of childhood absence epilepsy. And uh, just as an aside, uh, in the epilepsy world, we actually don't have a lot of head-to-head -head drug trials. You know, it's very hard to uh, power an, a head-to-head -head trial in order for, for effectiveness. And so it's really hard to uh, it's really hard to do these. So we really only have a handful, and we'll talk about each one of those. But uh, there is a famous trial that came out about 10 years ago for the treatment of, of childhood absence epilepsy. And the endpoint for most anti-seizure drug trials is, uh, is what's called freedom from treatment failure. And typically that is uh, that uh, the, the end point is whether or not the patient has stayed on that medication without having to add another medication or switch or change. So it's, you know, the, the uh, survival curves for these studies tend to be how many people are still taking this medication some point after starting and being enrolled in the trial. And I think that's a practically useful endpoint. And in most of the other very well done head-to-head uh, -head anti seizure trials, we have some type of similar endpoint. And the reason that's useful, saying it a year or however many months after randomization, they're still taking that drug, that really tells us something about both tolerability and effectiveness. Because the reasons a, a person might stop an anti-seizure drug is either it's not working, they're still having seizures, or they just can't take it. Uh, they can't right. take the side effects. And so I think that composite endpoint of tolerability is really useful. If you look at, uh, so this trial compared valproic acid, lamotrigine, and ethosuximide. If you look at effectiveness alone, so the effectiveness of the anti-seizure drugs, ethosuximide and valproate are very similar. They have similar yeah. benefit in terms of effectiveness against uh, absence epilepsy. Lamotrigine is less effective. So there were more children who had recurrent seizures after starting lamotrigine than the other two. But uh, ethosuximide, uh, was better tolerated. And specifically, these researchers looked at attentional dysfunction, and they found that children had fewer or lower rates of attentional dysfunction on ethosux than they did on uh, with valproic acid. And so that's why it's generally accepted that ethosuximide is going to be your first-line agent uh, for uh, childhood absence epilepsy. And I wanted to get into the pharmacodynamic profile of ethosuximide a little bit because it's a very specific mechanism of action and it explains why ethosuximide very specifically only works for absence seizures. So without getting into it in too much detail, uh, there are some classic animal models of absence epilepsy uh, that looked at the interactions between the thalamus and the cortex. And the major players, there's sort of three areas that are major players. There's the thalamocortical relay neurons. These are the neurons that take information from the rest of the body and relay it to the cortex. Uh, classic examples of thalamocortical relay neurons would be 
the relay neurons in the uh, ventral posterior lateral sensory nucleus of the thalamus. They take somatosensory information and they shoot it up to the primary sensory cortex. And there's lots of these relay neurons. Uh, and then there's the cortical pyramidal neurons. And there's oscillating information, information bouncing back and forth between the relay neurons and the, uh, and the uh, cortical pyramidal neurons all the time. And then in between, there are these thalamic reticular neurons. There's this reticular nucleus of the thalamus that really has input on the thalamocortical relay neurons. And bursting of the thalamic uh, reticular neurons will basically cause the relay neurons to switch from a relay to an oscillation mode. So they'll basically provoke oscillatory patterns between the thalamocortical relay neurons and the cortical pyramidal neurons. So when a person's awake and they're taking in information, the relay neurons are basically in relay mode. They're taking information in from the outside and sending it up to the cortex and you notice things. You see things, you hear things, you attend to things, etc. cetera. Uh, when the relay neurons can then switch to oscillation mode. And when they're in oscillation mode, you basically just have information bouncing back and forth between the cortex and the thalamus and people are uh, not attentive uh, to the outside world. And uh, this relay, uh, this oscillating, oscillating pattern, one of the normal manifestations of this oscillating pattern is the sleep spindle. I mean, in stage two sleep, we see oscillations and we see sleep spindles. Right. Another normal manifestation of that thalamocortical oscillation is the posterior dominant rhythm. Uh, and you close your eyes and you get augmentation of the, of the uh, arresting rhythm in the occipital cortex. But absence seizures basically hijack those normal circuits and cause the intrusion of oscillations during times when you're supposed to be alert and awake. And the thalamic reticular neurons play a role in that by causing these bursts to make that switch. Thalamic reticular neurons have a lot of T-type calcium channels. And activation of those T-type calcium channels will cause more activity in the thalamic reticular neuron and will cause these rhythmic bursts, which will cause this oscillation to happen. And so ethosuximide very specifically inhibits T-type calcium channels, mainly in the thalamic reticular neurons, maybe also in the thalamocortical relay neurons and other places, and it prevents this oscillation, so it very specifically prevents absence seizures. It's, it's very elegant, and it's really nice to think about because it allows you to think about uh, the mechanism of absence seizures. It's very rare, actually, in epilepsy that we're, we're diving this deep into mechanism because for many of the anti-seizure drugs, we actually don't know what the heck is going on or how they work. We just sort of guesswork, but this one is very specific. <laughs> Yeah, that is, that is a nice, it's, it's a nice thing for sure. Uh, so uh, on exams, just to summarize, there will often be a question about the mechanism of action of ethosuximide, and very specifically, it inhibits T-type calcium channels, mainly in the thalamic reticular neurons. All right, I'm, I'm coming hot and fast at you here. Here's another case. Yeah, let's case. do it. <laughs> All right, so a two-year-old boy with a history of developmental delay and febrile seizures, so seizures with a fever, is admitted with frequent seizures of multiple types. He initially began with myoclonic seizures, but now has multiple seizure types, including a lot of bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. So this, this boy is, uh, is very sick. So which medications would we want to avoid in this patient? 
So I'll, I'll give you a list. Clubazam, cannabidiol, levetiracetam, oxycarbazepine, parampanol. Which one of those would we be worried about in this patient? Boy, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. That's, um, let's see, I think that's, uh, it's one of the childhood epilepsy syndromes. I think that might be, it sounds like something like Dravet maybe with the multiple subtypes. Um, of those, you'd be fine with levetiracetam. I think you'd be, I think you might be fine with oxcarbazepine and clobazam. I think you'd have to worry about, uh, I guess I would say cannabidiol, but I'm honestly not sure. So one of the hints, and, and there's a lot wrapped up in this case and this question. So this, this child has Dravet syndrome. Uh, yeah. And the other name for that is severe myoclonic epilepsy in, in right. infancy so back or in to childhood. Like we talked and about it's, a, it's a sodium channelopathy. So it's a, yeah. it's a mutation in the SCN1A gene. Uh, that's a gene that encodes for the sodium channel. So you get this dysfunction of sodium channels. The other thing wrapped up in this is that it's myoclonic epilepsy. So getting back to our right. first case. And so really medications that inhibit sodium channel function are going to worsen the myoclonus and the seizures in these patients. So oxcarbazepine uh, in this case of the ones that you gave, uh, that you gave would be the one to avoid because that's a, you know, sodium channel blocker. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is a good time to sort of think about my overall view or rubric about uh, anti-seizure drug pharmacodynamics. And this is a gross oversimplification, but I am a simple man. Uh, so we think about the pyramidal neurons and eventually what happens in pyramidal neurons is that a group of pyramidal neurons fire synchronously at the same time and that produces a seizure. And so we are trying to lower the threshold for those pyramidal neurons to fire synchronously and cause a seizure. And so we're thinking about excitatory postsynaptic potentials, inhibitory postsynaptic potentials, and the actual depolarization of the neuron itself. And when we think about excitatory postsynaptic potentials, those are glutamate-mediated, inhibitory postsynaptic potentials are GABA-mediated, and the depolarization is mediated by voltage-gated sodium channels. That's sort of your first-year med school uh, physiology, thinking about resting potential, reaching a threshold potential, shooting off the voltage-gated sodium channels, you get a depolarization and an action potential, et cetera, et cetera. And our drugs basically fall into those categories. I've already said as an aside before, ethosox is a little different, uh, but these other drugs basically fall into those categories. And there's a lot of them, but they fall into some general categories. We have our sodium channel blockers, which work on depolarization. So they uh, uh, reduce the likelihood that those voltage-gated sodium channels, channels will open and reduce the likelihood of neuronal depolarization and, and firing as a result of that. And our classic Voltage-gated sodium channel inhibitors include phenytoin, carbamazepine, and oxcarbazepine, and eslicarbazepine, and then lamotrigine. You can uh, also think about lecosamide, uh, which uh, is uh, a potentiator of the delayed inactivation of sodium channels, so it works a little bit differently. It basically prolongs the period of delayed inactivation of that sodium channel to reduce subsequent depolarizations. Uh, rifinamide, Sonobamate, which is a new anti-seizure drug, has a role in sodium channels, and it's possible that valproic acid, among its many functions, affects sodium channels. Moving on to GABA potentiation, to these uh, inhibitory postsynaptic potentials, uh, classically those are your benzodiazepines. Uh, any of the benzodiazepines has the potential to 
uh, low, uh, raise your seizure threshold. Clebazam, which has a lot of similar uh, qualities to the uh, classic benzodiazepines. Phenobarbital, which acts directly on, on GABA channels. Valproic acid may have some GABA potentiating uh, functions. Vigabatrin, uh, which basically inhibits the breakdown of, uh, of uh, uh, GABA uh, by GABA transaminase. Uh, yep. and, then, uh, and then there are a few other drugs. And then for the excitatory postsynaptic potentials, there's actually a few different uh, mechanisms. You can have direct calcium channel blockade. You remember that the glutamate receptors open a calcium channel. And so uh, blocking that can help uh, with, uh, with the anti-seizure properties. And there's a number of medications that may work with that, including topiramate and zanisamide, uh, maybe gabapentin and pregabalin. And interestingly, magnesium. You might remember from first year uh, neurophysiology that there's a little magnesium ion that sits in the, uh, in the calcium uh, channels uh, of, uh, of glutaminergic um, uh, receptors and needs to be bumped out in order to let the calcium uh, influx in. And this is why magnesium works, for example, in, in preeclampsia. Uh, there, are, there are medications that probably have a more direct effect on the glutamate receptor itself. Uh, parampanil is easy to remember because it has AMPA in it, uh, and it uh, particularly affects the AMPA-mediated glutamate receptors. Felbamate and terpiramate may have some role in glutamate receptor antagonism as well. And then uh, uh, there are medications that affect the synaptic transmission of excitatory neurotransmitters. And uh, there's a specific uh, molecule that's involved in that synaptic transmission called SV2A. The SV is for synaptic vesicle, 2A is a subtype. And those include levetiracetam and brivaracetam. Uh, so uh, that's sort of an overview. Again, you may not be able to remember all of these, but you're sort of thinking about sodium channel blockade, GABA potentiation, and then uh, glutamate-mediated uh, uh, excitatory impulses. And when we're choosing anti-seizure drugs, although it's not perfect, often we like to combine medications with different mechanisms of action. Sometimes we do combine two sodium channels and it works, but often when we have somebody on one sodium channel blocker, we're not gonna add another one because maybe it compounds the risk of the types of side effects you see with sodium channels like diplopia or unsteadiness or slurred speech or uh, some of the other things. And, and sodium channel modulators, again, just to, uh, I don't, uh, don't want to belabor it too much, but uh, they can worsen myoclonus. That's a recurring theme of what we're talking about. Uh, when combined, they worsen side effects, and they really should be avoided in Dravet syndrome, uh, which is a sodium channelopathy. All right, a couple more cases. So a 14-year-old boy with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome is experiencing daily seizures, including clusters of tonic seizures that re result in falls and injury. He's tried over 12 different anti-seizure medications, and he has a vagus nerve stimulator. And that's not unusual. Uh, we see that in, in people with, with LGS. Yeah. And he's currently on four drugs. He's taking Clubazam, Divalproex, Lamotrigine, and Levetiracetam. And his family is interested in trying high-grade pharmacologic cannabidiol. So there's some evidence that high, high dose pharmacologic cannabidiol uh, can be very effective uh, in reducing seizures in people with some of these severe epilepsy syndromes, including uh, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and Gervais syndrome. Um, but it's really important to remember that some medications can be affected by cannabidiol. So um, which one of these medications uh, 
is likely to be affected by cannabidiol. And again, his list of medications are clubazam, divalproex, lamotrigine, and levetiracetam. Oh boy. So um, I think, so cannabidiol, I think affects uh, some, some of the like liver metabol metabolization processes. I believe clobazam goes through some of that. Um, I'm not, I don't recall the specifics very well, but, but I think it would be clobazam would be uh, affected and I think it would increase the uh, um, metabolization of it. Yeah. So, so actually cannabidiol inhibits the metabolism of, of, uh, of uh, clobazam and can result in some of the active metabolite, accumulation of the active metabolite. So the active metabolite of clobazam is some, something called N-desmethyl clobazam. Uh, mm -hmm. And so uh, that uh, is both contributes to its anti-seizure effects, but also its, um, its toxicity. And so uh, we do often have to monitor both clobazam and N-desmethyl clobazam levels uh, when we're starting people on uh, pharmacological grade cannabidiol. And I'm, I'm not talking about the cannabidiol that you might get from a dispensary, which is often very low dose. Uh, I'm talking about the pharmacologically available, very high dose uh, cannabidiol that's, that's available. And, and uh, while there are interac interactions with some other anti-seizure drugs, the really one to, to look at carefully is clubazam. And uh, in some of the trials, uh, there, uh, there was evidence to suggest that uh, children who were also already on clubazam had the greatest benefit from the pharmacological grade uh, cannabidiol, and, and that's probably because some of the pharmacokinetic interactions. Uh, so this is a hot topic. And as you said before, transaminases have to be monitored carefully, and particularly uh, when somebody has other medications that can affect transaminases. And in this case, this patient is taking divalproex. Uh, so we, we often have to check the liver function, particularly in kids that are, are taking valproic acid as well. Here's, here's a different type of problem with anti-seizure drugs. So a 37-year-old woman with mild static cognitive dysfunction and focal epilepsy has frequent seizures that have been difficult to control on medication. So really tricky focal epilepsy syndrome. Okay. Uh, once or twice a month, she'll have clusters of seizures. And these are focal impaired awareness seizures, what we used to call complex partial seizures. And these clusters, she can have three or four in a single day. You know, she's fine for uh, several weeks and then has this cluster. All day she's having seizures. And sometimes that culminates in bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. So what can we give her for these clusters? And this is relatively hot off the press, you know, within the last couple of years, we're using some medications for clusters. And I'll, I'll give you some options. We could give her some lorazepam pills. Uh, we could give rectal diazepam. We could give intravenous lorazepam. Doesn't seem particularly practical. Yeah. Or we could try intranasal midazolam. Well, I think, uh, you know, if, if we're looking at, you know, all of those medications, obviously benzodiazepines are, are good, you know, rescue medications generally is how we think about them. An oral medication might take a while to take effect. Um, an IV medication might be difficult to administer. Um, I know we use rectal diazepam a lot in, uh, in children, but I think intranasal midazolam might work in terms of getting, um, you know, rapid onset of action because of the mucosal, uh, absorption, and then you're still getting, uh, uh, that sort of rescue effect. Yeah, so intranasal midazolam has been improved for the treatment of cl seizure clusters. There is a clinical trial uh, of seizure clusters for intranasal midazolam that was published within the last year or so. 
and it is a very effective drug. Uh, it's uh, safe and effective and is associated with lower rates of recurrence uh, in people who had seizure clusters. And it really has favorable pharmacokinetics. Um, so it uh, is a benzodiazepine and its, its absorption is very fast. So Tmax, which is the time to peak concentration in your dose response curve, is, is on average about 15 minutes, uh, which is really fast. Obviously intravenous is much faster, but for, uh, for absorption uh, beyond intravenous medications, it's very fast. And to give you a sense of comparison, uh, intramuscular, so I am midazolam, actually it's Tmax is probably somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes, depending on the person. Uh, Buccal midazolam similar, about 20 or 30 minutes, but intranasal is about 15, so it works super fast. Uh, rectal diazepam, which has been used for many years uh, for children, uh, has a Tmax, uh, so a time to peak concentration of, of over an hour, probably about an hour and a half. Uh, and uh, there is a new formulation of intranasal diazepam that's uh, coming out uh, that may be used in children with seizure clusters. Uh, it still has a longer Tmax, but may be effective in that case. And, and a lorazepam pill, uh, even if it's sub sublingual, we're talking somewhere around two hours uh, for Tmax. Right. So intranasal midazolam works fast. And the nice thing too, is it has a quick on and a quick off. So um, in terms of when you're getting back to uh, sort of your baseline level or metabolizing the vast majority of that, it's within a few hours. Within a few hours, the medication has cleared and probably by about four hours, it's, it's uh, mostly gone out of the system. Uh, so the person can, can get on with their life. All right, uh, Kevin, I'm, I'm going to do a couple quick snappers. This is just for fun for our listeners. Uh, and I, I'm putting you on the spot here, but which anti-seizure drug is least likely to cause a rash, so a skin rash? And your options are lamotrigine, zanisamide, carbamazepine, phenytoin, and valproic acid. Well, we know lamotrigine is a, you know, a classic medication that we list in terms of uh, like Stevens-Johnson syndrome and things like that. And I'm also aware of carbamazepine and phenytoin having rashes associated, and I believe also zanisamide. So uh, uh, I think valproic acid, despite you know, the litany of other side effects that it has, I think is one of the ones that is least likely to cause a rash. Yeah, it, it's, re it's really low. Uh, the rates of valproic acid rashes are very small. In one study, about 1%. Uh, to give you a sense of that, um, you know, the rates of, of rash with lamotrigine phenytoin are probably sort of in the five, five, six percent range. Uh, and certainly with lamotrigine, some of that uh, is, can be life-threatening Stevens-Johnson rash. Uh, zanisamide is one that I think is well, uh, less well-known, uh, but definitely can be associated with increased risk of rash. Um, and then there is some evidence that if you've had a rash with one anti-seizure drug, the likelihood of having a rash with another one goes up considerably, probably because of uh, the underlying immune process that, that caused that. All right, we'll think about elderly patients. So what is the average decrease in drug clearance in elderly patients? So uh, we'll say, is it low, uh, 10 to 20%, so modest effect, a medium effect, 20 to 40%, or, or a high effect, sort of the 50 to 100%? Well, you know, they hate to use test taking strategy, but I think, you know, in this case, um, I'm going to go with the moderate, like 20 to 40%, I think 50 to hundred percent seems quite extreme. And I do expect there's a pretty decent effect. So, so we'll go with 20 to 40%. Yeah. I, I think your test taking strategy is smart. And, uh, and I think, uh, overall, uh, good advice for our listeners. Um, 
with elderly patients with anti-seizure drugs, you got to start low and go slow. Uh, the decreases in drug clearance are on average somewhere between 30 and 40%. Uh, they're, they're pretty high, and that's pretty well for every drug. Uh, and so really, we should be shooting for lower doses uh, in elderly patients than we're using in, in younger patients. And, um, and this is something we don't always pay enough attention to. So with elderly patients, there can be a dramatic reduction in clearance, and, and it really is with every drug. So start low, go slow. All right. Um, a middle-aged man is found down. The paramedics arrive. He's having ongoing convulsive movements. Which treatment option is most likely to result in the fastest cessation of seizures? So this is somebody in the field found down. Is it going to be intravenous lorazepam, intravenous diazepam, rectal diazepam, or intramuscular midazolam? Well, I think in this case, like we talked about before, in terms of uh, you know like rapidly getting medications into people, I mean, I think if we if we account for so intravenous medications generally get into the system very quickly, but we have to account for you know presumably this guy is not walking around with an IV, um, so we have to account for the time it's going to take to get the IV into him. And intramuscular medications also work relatively relatively quickly, so I would suspect that intramuscular midazolam is going to be our best bet in getting a rapid onset of action. Yeah, this is uh, this is very good, and this is a trial that every resident needs to know about called the Rampart trial, uh, published again about 10 years ago, a little less than that. Uh, so there is no question that there is a very short Tmax for intravenous medications, nearly instantaneous. So uh, if you're looking at convulsive status epilepticus and you look at the time from the active treatment to the actual stopping the convulsions, uh, lorazepam does that faster than I am midazolam. But if you look at how long it takes, so in the study, they basically looked at the time from opening the box with the study drug, whether it was IV or IM, uh, to cessation of convulsions. And IM midazolam was faster for exactly the reason you said, uh, Kevin, which is that uh, from the time of opening the box to getting the treatment in, uh, averaged about a minute or two uh, for IM midazolam. You just uncap it, you know, stick it in the muscle, and you're done. Uh, IV lorazepam on average took about five minutes and in some patients much longer and some never got the drug because uh, they were uh, working so hard to try to get uh, an intravenous line. And I think, as you said, it's a safe assumption to think that he's not walking around with easy intravenous access. All right. So this same man, we're going to do another podcast on status epilepticus, but I think this is another important trial to think about. This same man is given 10 milligrams of intramuscular midazolam but continues to have convulsive movement. So we're going to move on to a non-sedating anti-seizure drug um, to try to stop these. So which one should we use? Which one is most likely to stop his seizures? And we, we, our options in our protocol include phosphenitoin, levetiracetam, and valproic acid. There are others that may work as well. So which one is, uh, is gonna work best? Uh, really, I think you can you can go with any of those. I, I've certainly used all three of those at various points you know, in the last year or so uh, to, to try to stop a patient who is in status. So I, I think that any of those would be an appropriate option and certainly are, are on our status protocol. Yeah, and as it turns out, uh, it's uh, basically, uh, they're basically about the same. So um, there has been a recently uh, published uh, study in the literature that's good uh, for people to be aware of. It came out within the last six months or so. Uh, it's called the uh, ESET study. 
Uh, and the name of that study, I always have to look it up. Uh, drug, uh, drug trial names are always tough for me, but established status epilepticus treatment trial. So you're looking at, as in this case, somebody with established status epilepticus that has not responded to first-line therapy, and they randomized patients uh, to uh, receive either intravenous phosphatidine, levetiracetam, or intravenous valproate. Uh, and the outcome, the primary outcome, was cessation of seizures with improved level of consciousness within 60 minutes. And overall treatment success was about uh, uh, 45%. So 45% of patients received uh, achieved that treatment success of cessation of seizures right away in, in 60 minutes. Uh, and uh, the rates at which they achieved that success were essentially indistinguishable with the three drugs. Uh, there were some subgroup issues that we won't get into in this uh, uh, podcast, but uh, just to say uh, the medications were, were roughly uh, equivalent. And so, uh, and with also with similar rates of uh, adverse effects. And so uh, not to oversimplify it much, um, but I think it's much more important than to act, it is much more important to act quickly and decisively in the treatment of status epilepticus than it is to choose exactly the right drug. And that's why our protocols take that into account. Um, you have a forest fire on your hands uh, and you uh, are just trying to get as much water on that forest fire as possible. And, and, and these drugs are slightly different types of water. Uh, and so there may be some reasons based on comorbidities or based on uh, uh, previous uh, drug uh, interactions or, or other considerations with the patient themselves why you might choose one versus the other. But in general, they're going to have roughly similar outcomes. Well, I think we covered a lot. Obviously, we didn't get into uh, all of the anti-seizure medications. Uh, we didn't talk as much about some of the new anti-seizure medications, although we did talk about them sort of in general. My hesitance is to get into sort of a laundry list of uh, the indications, contraindications of each drug. I mean, I think our, our listeners can look those things up, but to really right. talk about some of the practical approaches and talk about some of the things that come up in both practice and on certification exams. I agree. And I think, you know, I think the useful thing is to kind of build that mental framework. We talked a little bit earlier about the sort of three different ways you can attack here where you have the excitatory uh, 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 neurons, you have the inhibitory process, and then you also have uh, sort of the propagation um, with the sodium channel blockade that, we, that you can sort of go after the depolarization and propagation. Um, so I think, you know, being able to sort of bin the, the drugs in that way and then, you know, thinking through because then what you're going to get on the test is all the different ways they can trip you up with adverse effects and pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic effects. So keeping track of those things. And I hope we've gone over a couple of them today and I hope, uh, you know, hope everybody's learned some things. I, you know, I've certainly had some things re, uh, uh, renewed for me. So, uh, you know, I hope everybody's learned a lot from that. Thanks, Kevin. This was fun. Yeah. Great. Thank you.